Genesis 46, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Let us turn now to 1 Peter and consider chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter 1 starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to come to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories." It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning. As you can see, we are rapidly approaching the end of our study of the book of Genesis. I always feel a little sad when we come to the end of a a study of a book like this. Uh, It has become a good friend, hasn't it? Uh, I've come, I hope that you have too, to love uh, the book of Genesis very much and to see Christ present within it uh, through all its pages. But as we near the end of our study of this book, I wish to remind you that this book, from beginning to end, is a book about the beginning of things. That is what the name Genesis means. It means origin or beginning. In this book, we were told about the beginning of God's creation, the beginning of God's covenantal dealings with man, with the establishment of the covenant of works in the garden made with Adam. We were told of the beginning of sin and death. And we also learned of God's gracious response to it. Shortly after man's fall into sin, God promised to provide a Savior. This was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, therefore. But very early in Genesis, we began to see that God would bring this Savior that He had promised. He would bring the Savior into the world through a particular people. 
Very early in Genesis, distinctions were made between people. Righteous and unrighteous lines were identified. And all of this grew in clarity with the call of a man named Abram. Promises were made to him. A covenant was cut with him. And so Genesis reveals to us the beginning of God's covenantal dealings with Abraham and his particular offspring. We should remember that there were two covenants incubating within the Abrahamic covenant. On the one hand, God made promises to Abraham that he would have many offspring and that through his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we know, for the scriptures plainly teach this, that these promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Christ and in the new covenant that would be ratified in his blood. The covenant of grace was embedded, therefore, within the Abrahamic covenant in the form of promise. And so in the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of the covenant of grace ratified in Christ's blood. But other promises were made to Abraham, which had reference not only to the Christ who would come from his loins, and to all the spiritual blessings found in him, but to his immediate offspring. He was promised a child. He was promised many descendants through that child. He was also promised a land, that is, the land of Canaan. He would not possess it in his lifetime, but he would lay a hold of it through his offspring and also in the resurrection, in the new heavens and new earth. To Abraham... It was even said that nations and kings would come from him. So in Abraham, we see not only the beginning of the covenant of grace that would be ratified in Christ's blood, but also the beginning of the old covenant, which is in the process of time to be mediated through Moses. Promises were made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A covenant was cut with them. And in due time, that covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, would give birth to the old Mosaic covenant and then also to the new covenant of grace with Christ as its mediator. As I have said, the book of Genesis is a book about the beginning of things. It's about the beginning of lots of things. And as we move closer to the end of it, we are seeing more clearly that this book is concerned to describe to us the beginning of the nation of Israel. This was the nation promised to Abraham. This was the nation that would come from him. This is the nation that would eventually produce the Christ. And in Genesis, we find an account of its origin. Genesis chapters 46 and 47, uh, they tell us of the third and final journey taken by Joseph's brothers down into Egypt. In Genesis 42, the brothers of Joseph went down into Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe. They left their youngest brother and father at home in the land of promise, and all but Simeon returned home again. He was held captive, remember. And then in Genesis chapters 43 through 45, the brothers of Joseph went down into Egypt again. This time they took their brother Benjamin with them. Again, they left their father at home in the land of Canaan. They hoped to return to him with grain, for the famine was severe in the land, but they also hoped to return with every one of their siblings, including Simeon. And this they did. But they also returned to their father with good news. In 45.25, we read, They went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, 
And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. As I have said, Genesis chapters 46 and 47, which we are beginning to consider today, tells us about the third and final journey taken by Joseph's family down into Egypt. As we know, this time they would not quickly return, but they would remain there for a very long time. Now, if we lose sight of the overall story being told in Genesis, if we forget the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel concerning the eventual possession of the land of Canaan and the great nation that was to come from them, then we might miss the real drama of this narrative. There is drama here. There is high emotion contained within this text. The thing that gets us on the surface, the thing that tugs on our heartstrings, is the thought of Jacob, who is here called Israel, seeing his son Joseph again. For all those years, Jacob thought that his beloved son was dead. He lived perpetually with that lingering sadness. But in his old age, he learned that he was in fact alive. It was almost as if his beloved son had been raised from the dead. And not only was he raised from the dead, but he was exalted to the highest position of power within Egypt, with the exception of Pharaoh himself. There is a real personal and human element to this story, isn't there? Jacob, he must have been overjoyed beside himself. The scriptures say that upon hearing that Joseph was alive, he was numb. He must have been so eager to make that journey down into Egypt and to see his beloved son alive and in glory. But what about the promises of God made to the patriarchs? What about the land of Canaan that was promised to them? What about the nation that was to come from them? What about all of that? How are we to think of this journey down into Egypt and away from the land of Canaan in light of those promises? In fact, this is where the real drama is found, brothers and sisters. If we are following along in the Genesis narrative, this is where the real drama is found. Israel was eager to go down into Egypt to see his beloved son Joseph alive and in glory. But the question is, should he? Should he do this and abandon, as it were, that land of promise? That is the question that is put before us in the narrative of Genesis and in our passage today. And certainly this would have been the question on the minds of the people to whom Moses originally delivered this book. We are to remember that it was Moses who wrote this book a long time after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had passed from this earth. He wrote this book and he delivered it, not first of all to you and to me, but to the nation of Israel after they were redeemed from Egypt, after they had spent spent a long time suffering in that place. They were wandering in the wilderness. This was before their conquest of Canaan. Moses delivered this book to them for the first time. And what do you think was on their minds? I'm sure that some of them wondered about their history. I'm sure that some of them wondered about their time in bondage to the Egyptians. 
Was it a mistake for Jacob to take his family there? Was this the result of a a lack of faith in him? Should he have persevered in Canaan, trusting that the Lord would provide for him and sustain him in the midst of the famine? After all, look at the result. Hundreds of years of bondage. Hundreds of years of hard labor. Tremendous suffering for the Hebrew people. Did he have a lapse of faith when he made that journey? Was this bondage in Egypt thing, a bump in the road in God's plan of redemption. Did God even abandon His people for a time? The narrative that is before us today answers these questions. It is a very significant portion of Scripture theologically speaking, especially as it pertains to the history of Israel. Genesis chapters 46 through 47 forms one unit which describes the third journey of the family of Jacob down into Egypt. But it is divided into seven scenes, and I would like to consider only the first of the seven scenes this morning, leaving the rest of the text for another time. Notice that in verses 1 through 4, God appears to Jacob in a night vision. This is the last record that we have of God speaking to one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The next time that God will reveal Himself to His people will be through Moses in that encounter with God and the burning bush. Hundreds of years would pass between this moment and that one. And I want for you to notice three things about this first scene of Genesis chapter 46. One, notice that before Jacob departed for Egypt, before he actually took his family down there, He first journeyed to Beersheba to give worship to God. The text does not say it explicitly, but it implies it clearly that Jacob was agonizing over the question, is it right to leave Canaan, the land of promise, and to go down into Egypt? Beersheba was a very important location to the patriarchs. It was there that Abraham worshipped. Genesis 21:33 says so. It was there that the Lord appeared to Isaac. And listen to what the Lord said to Isaac there at Beersheba. This is significant. The Lord spoke to Isaac, the father of Jacob, saying, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And it was from Beersheba, we are to remember, that Jacob, the same Jacob that we are talking about in this passage today, it was from Beersheba that Jacob departed for Haran when he was a young man fleeing from the wrath of his twin brother Esau. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that Jacob, as a young man, did spend many years in bondage to his father-in-law Laban in Haran, he knew how painful it could be, therefore, to leave the land of Canaan. I'm sure that he was in this moment concerned about going into bondage again, but this time with his whole family in tow and in the land of Egypt. Perhaps Jacob went to Beersheba because it was near there that the Lord appeared to him all those years ago as he was preparing to leave the land of promise for Haran as he was fleeing from his brother. And it was there that the Lord spoke to him in that vision with the ladder going up to heaven and the angels 
descending and ascending upon that ladder. And we should remember what the Lord said to him all those years ago as Jacob was preparing to leave Canaan for Haran to spend years in bondage in that place. The Lord spoke to Jacob saying, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is what Jacob heard the last time that he was near Beersheba. This was the message that he heard as a young man fleeing not to Egypt but to Haran to be with his brother, his, his father-in-law Laban. He was encouraged by God with these words. The land was promised to him. It would surely come to pass that his descendants would possess it. And God said to him, I will be with you wherever you go. I will be with you as you leave. I will be with you as you are there in this place outside of the promised land. And I will be with you as I bring you back. And so, friends, we must not forget the things that Jacob experienced in his younger years. He knew the pain of leaving Canaan to go into bondage. He experienced it personally in Haran under Laban. But in that experience, he also learned that his God was no tribal deity. His God was not the God of one nation only or of a particular land, as if he were confined to that place. His God was God Most High, the Lord of all creation. And so Jacob spent time in exile in Haran, but God was with him just as he had promised in that vision. And God was faithful to bring him home again, just as he had promised in that vision. And all of this must have been on Jacob's mind as he prepared to lead his family to Egypt. And it is no wonder then that we see that Jacob went to Beersheba to worship. I'm sure that he was eager to hear from the Lord again, to know for certain if he should stay or if he should go. Two, notice that God did appear to Jacob there in Beersheba. Verse 2 says that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. It is worth noting that although God called Jacob by the name Jacob, Moses, as the author and narrator of Genesis, refers to him as Israel throughout this passage. It's as if Moses wants the reader to see most clearly that when Jacob took his family to Egypt, he was also taking the nation of Israel there to grow and to develop. But God spoke to Jacob saying, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. This terminology is to remind us of that time when Abraham was tested, when he was called by God to slay his son. Remember that when Abraham lifted the knife, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. That is Genesis twenty-two eleven. The terminology is identical here. Only Jacob's name replaces Abraham's. And this is to show that both Abraham and Jacob had their faith tested in these episodes. 
Abraham proved that his faith was sincere, believing that God would indeed keep his promises regarding offspring, land, and a nation. He believed that God could even raise the boy from the dead if necessary. This is the interpretation that Hebrews 11.19 gives. And here in this episode, Jacob's faith was also being tested. Would he be willing to go to Egypt and to stay there, knowing that God could raise Israel from the dead, as it were? God called Jacob in this moment of trial, saying, Jacob, Jacob. And both Abraham and Jacob replied, as every faithful servant should, with the simple words, Here I am. It's as if he said, Here I am, Lord, I stand ready and eager to hear your word and to simply trust you and obey you. This is the reply of a servant. And so, child of God, I do ask you this. Is this your daily disposition before the Lord? Do you, like Abraham and Israel, stand before God with the heart of a servant saying, Here I am, Lord, teach me your word so that I might faithfully obey you. Three, notice that God spoke to Jacob in this night vision and pay special attention to what God said to him, for it's very significant. In verse three, we read, then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God revealed himself to Jacob as God, the God of your father. Now, God was certainly Jacob's God's to, God too. Do not misunderstand. But when God referred to himself as God, the God of your father, it was to remind Jacob of the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac in past generations and of his constant faithfulness shown to them. And brothers and sisters, it is good for the Christian to be reminded of God's very great promises made to the fathers in ages past and of God's faithfulness to them. It is also good for us to see and to remember God's faithfulness to us personally in the past. All of this helps us to rest assured in the present that our God will be faithful to us today. No matter how difficult the thing is that we are experiencing, our God is faithful. He has always been faithful. He will be faithful now and He will be faithful to all eternity. For He does not change. Our God is true. Our God cannot lie. He cannot break His promises. God then directly addressed Jacob's fears, saying, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Though God was doing something far greater than was what was involved in Jacob's life, Jacob the individual, He nonetheless cared for Jacob the individual, and he met his needs. As I have said, the text does not say it explicitly, but is strongly implied. Jacob was afraid. He was perplexed. He did not know which way to go. He was eager to go and see his son Joseph, but Was he to remain there in that place? Would the Egyptians take them captive in that moment? His heart was filled with fear. And God spoke to him, saying, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And friends, God does the same for you and me. 
He calls us to follow after Him, and He also provides for all of our needs, physical and even emotional. This is what, the Paul, what Paul the Apostle was referring to when he said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Here Paul is pleading with the Christians in Rome to see that if God would provide for us Christ Jesus as a sacrifice to atone for our sins, if He would do all of that, then why would we not also expect for Him to provide for all of our other needs? This does not mean that following after Christ will always be easy, but it does mean that God is faithful to provide for His people, for He cares for us. To those who fear, Jesus our Lord says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Jesus says to His followers, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a, as small a th- as thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, Jesus says, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God addresses our fears, just as He addressed Jacob's fears, saying to him, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. After this, God clarified to him that it would be in Egypt that He would bring His promises concerning a nation to fulfillment, saying, For there I will make you into a great nation." In fact, this was not the first time that God revealed to the patriarchs uh, that Israel would become a great nation in a foreign land. Even to Abraham, when he was still called Abram, God said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So God revealed even to Abraham that the pathway to his people becoming this great nation that he had promised would involve slavery in a foreign land. And here in this text that we are considering this morning, to Jacob it was revealed more specifically that the foreign land would be Egypt. And so God revealed this to him graciously. Brothers and sisters, it is always a bit puzzling to me when Christians are surprised by suffering. 
It is even more puzzling to me when Christians buy into some teaching which says that God's will for us or for His people is that we not suffer. In fact, the Scriptures have this theme from beginning to end. Those who belong to God are not immune from from suffering. In fact, oftentimes it seems that the righteous suffer the most. For Israel, the road to the attainment of the promised land was marked by difficulty by trial, and by tribulation. And the same is true for the Israel of God today. Our journey to the heavenly promised land will be marked by trial and tribulation, for the Lord strengthens and refines His people through it, and in our weakness, He, God, shows Himself to be strong. Friends, God says to you what He said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And may we have the same mind of Paul, saying in reply, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is this our disposition, brothers and sisters? Do we believe that indeed God's grace is sufficient for us to sustain us in the midst of difficult circumstances? Are we willing to say, along with Paul, I am content with weakness, with the insults, with the hardships, with the persecutions, with the calamities. I'm content to to persevere in the midst of all of this, for I know that when I am weak, it is then that I'm truly strong. And how could this be? It is because in these weak places, in this position of humility, it is there that we are found depending most sincerely upon our God. His power is made perfect in weakness, we hear. After revealing that He would make Israel into a great nation, specifically in Egypt, God said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you, to Egypt. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. These words sounded familiar to Jacob. They must have. For when he journeyed towards Haran those many years earlier, the Lord comforted him in a very similar way, saying, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. In both situations, the Lord comforted Jacob by promising to always be with him. He comforted Jacob most deeply by saying to Jacob, My presence will always be with you. Brothers and sisters, we know that God is omnipresent, don't we? There is no limit at all to His presence, but He is is everywhere. But here, God promised to be with Jacob and with His offspring in a special way to sustain them and to bless them while in Egypt. And this is what we mean when we say that God is near to us, when we say that God is close to us and by our side. We are not denying His omnipresence, but we are rather emphasizing God's special care and concern for His people. He walks with them, if you will, and to use human terminology, He walks with them through the trials of life. He is present with them to support them and to sustain them through life's difficulties. 
And this is what he meant when he said to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Clearly, this language that is proper to human beings is here being applied to God. Um, Most truly, God cannot go anywhere, for He is everywhere present, fully and perfectly so. But we do understand what is meant by the phrase, God condescended to Jacob's capacity. He used human language and communicated to him in a most tender way, saying essentially this, I will personally be with you on this journey to bless you and to sustain you. And this is the greatest of all blessings, God's loving presence. Truly, it is God's loving presence which will make heaven heavenly. And it is the lack of it which will make hell such a miserable place. True, it is God's, truly, it is God's loving presence with His people that enables them to thrive and to rejoice even in the most trying of circumstances. God's presence makes hellish circumstances heavenly. And the lack of God's presence makes heavenly circumstances, earthly speaking, hellish. God is everything, brothers and sisters. To have Him is to have all that we need. If we have God, then we have all that we need. And I want for you to see that Jacob learned this lesson from experience. His faith grew while in Haran as he saw God fulfill his promise to be with him in that place. We witnessed tremendous growth in this man, Jacob. He was transformed from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who had wrestled with God and prevailed. We saw a tremendous transformation in him. And, and, and what was at the heart of it? He, he learned to love God. He learned that God was faithful to his promises. He knew the presence of the Lord because he experienced God's sustaining work in his life while in Haran all those years ago. And now in his old age, he knows that it is true. He knows that when God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, it is true. He believed it. And so I wonder, Christian, have you learned this? Have you learned that the greatest of all blessings is God's presence? Have you come to truly believe God when He says to you who are in Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Hebrews 13, 5. God spoke to Jacob saying, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And then He said, I will also bring you up again. Clearly, this promise was in reference not primarily to Jacob as an individual, but to his descendants and to the nation that would come from him, that is to say, Israel. Jacob, as Israel, would go down into Egypt, and God would bring Jacob, as Israel, back up again through the Exodus and through the mediation of Moses. This promise, though primarily about the nation of Israel, did pertain also to Jacob as an individual in the sense that he would be buried in Canaan. We will hear about that in just a a few moments uh, in, in the weeks to come. And he would also enjoy Canaan, we must remember, in the resurrection, that is to say in the new heavens and the new earth. The New Testament scriptures make it clear that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had their eyes set not upon Canaan, (laughs) earthly Canaan, but upon 
the heavenly Jerusalem. They had their hopes set not on on the things of this world, but in the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. And then lastly, we have this remark, which was clearly for Jacob the individual. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is most tender, isn't it? It's very moving. We are to remember what Jacob said when he was told that his son was dead those many years before. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. This was his resolve. Uh, This was his perspective that nothing could comfort him there as he suffered in that deep state of grief. Thus his father wept for him, we are told. Genesis 37, 35. But now he hears that he will die a peaceful death, and it will in fact be Joseph's hand that will close his eyes. Uh, Truly, Jacob had received Joseph back from the dead, as it were. There was a kind of resurrection that had taken place, and it was this resurrection of Joseph in the life of Jacob that brought him great joy and hope and peace. This vision and the words of God delivered to Jacob must have been a great help and comfort to him. It must have also been very comforting to his children and grandchildren as they too prepared to go down into Egypt. They were perplexed, they were afraid, and yet the vision and the word of God delivered to them therein gave them the courage that they needed to sojourn on. These were very perplexing times for Israel and his family. The family was severe, it threatened their very lives, and in so doing, it threatened the fulfillment of the promises of God that were given to this family, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They must have agonized over the question of what to do as they stood perplexed. But when God gave His word to them, when God spoke, it was like a ray of light cutting through the darkness. Israel could then move forward with confidence, for something of God's plans and purposes had been revealed to them. They could walk in that light that God had provided. And I say this to you, hoping that you will grow in your appreciation of God's Word. Do you love God's words, God's Word, brother and si- brothers and sisters? Do you cherish God's Word? Do you treat it and use it as that lamp to our feet and light to our path, as Psalm 119.105 calls it? When God reveals Himself to us, when He speaks and discloses to us something definite of His plans and purposes. It enables us to walk confidently in this world and according to that truth. I'm sure that you have all had the experience of walking in an unfamiliar place in total darkness. I'm sure you've had that experience. It's unnerving. Every step that you take in a situation like that is unsure. But when we walk in the light... Even in places that are unfamiliar, we walk in a resolute way and with confidence. That is what light does for us. It enables us to walk with confidence. And this is what God's Word does for us. God has revealed truth to us. He has revealed Himself. He has revealed His plans and purposes for us. And this, if we are to receive it, 
enables us to walk with confidence and with resoluteness in this world. Friends, we are to see that God has spoken. He has given us His Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Hebrews 1-2 through 2 says. And we are wise to listen to God's Word and to walk in the light of it. I do understand that God has not revealed to us everything that we might like to know concerning His plans and purposes. Uh, There are many details concerning His will that are held back from us. That is why we refer to His will in this sense as His hidden or mysterious will. But He has revealed enough so that we might confidently walk by faith. In other words, though many things pertaining to His plans and purposes remain mysterious to us. He has not left us in the dark entirely. He has revealed to us what it is that He is doing in the world, generally speaking, so that we might order our lives and plan our steps according to this truth. In this narrative, you could almost hear Joseph or Jacob thinking to himself, God, why this famine? Why was Joseph taken from me for all those years? Why must we leave this land of promise and go down into Egypt, etc.? And what did God do for Jacob? Well, he did not answer all of his questions, but he did reveal something of his plans and purposes so that Jacob could go forward with confidence. And friends, I am saying that he has done the same for you and me. We might ask, Lord, what are you doing here in this moment? Why has this or that thing happened? Why this suffering that I am now experiencing? And many things remain mysterious to us, but we have not been left in the dark. We know what God is up to, generally speaking. We understand that He is drawing His elect. He is growing His kingdom. He is sanctifying His people. And He will do so until the end of time, when He brings all things to a consummation and the new heavens and new earth. We have His Word. Let us therefore live according to what He has revealed and not neglect it. God's revelation of Himself and of His plans and purposes enables us to sojourn confidently in this world by faith. And so it was for Jacob. Look with me at verse 5 and we will read verses 5 and 6 and with this we will close. Then Jacob, after having received this revelation from God, set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. And it is here at this point that we will resume next Sunday, Lord willing. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the grace and mercy that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. We are grateful for uh, what He has done for us as it pertains to sin. He has atoned for our sin. But we are also grateful for the revelation that is contained within Him. He is the eternal Word of God come in the flesh. Through Him you have supremely spoken. He is the final Word. And we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the fact that You have in ages past and up until the arrival of the Christ revealed Yourself to fallen men. Uh, This is the greatest of blessings. We admit, Lord, that apart from You speaking to us and You revealing Yourself and Your truth to us, we would be left to 
wander in the dark. But because you have spoken, we are able to know you truly and we are able to walk in this world confidently. Lord, help us to love your law. Help us to cherish your word. Help us to come to see it as truly being more precious than gold, more savory than honey to our lips. Father God, we are grateful for all that you have blessed us with. Not only have you given us the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ Jesus, but you have provided for us everything that we need to live lives of godliness before you. We are grateful, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen.